are the gentlemen advancing the melanin evolution. All right, so what were your thoughts on? So this this book was out in 2015. Um, I saw it and and I bought it, but I didn't read it until about 2017, 2018. What what were your initial thoughts of just the title of the book before you even read anything into it? Go, go ahead, Jeff. No, you go. No, I, I thought it was, um, I thought it was referring to uh, the Tupac, the Tupac album, "Me Against the World." Mm-hmm. You know, just off of the assumptions between the world and me, "Me Against the World," and so I'm like, okay, well, if it has that tone, it's probably going to be speaking to uh, a lot of pain and trauma. And, you know, that's what the, the title reminded me of. It's like, man, okay, is he, is he putting his flag again in the sand against the world? Does he feel like he's, he's against the world? Or w- what, what is going on between him and the world? It was adversarial to me. Tupac is adversarial. So... I think on those same lines, that was kind of like my idea just from the title. Um, I think I've stated before, prior to this book club, I haven't been like an avid reader, like, oh, I'm going to read this next, I'm going to read this. I knew a lot of people have been talking about this book. Um, and obviously, he went to Howard. So I'm kind of familiar with him. But in terms of the title, I don't know. The title alone, it didn't, it didn't pull me in unless somebody was like, hey, you should check this out or, or like you should read it. I almost thought almost the same thing at first, kind of like from that Tupac kind of like mindset. It's like me against the world. So I was like, okay, we heard that before. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's just, again, it didn't make me want to run out and just grab this book just based straight off the title i think for me i was trying to figure out what is that dimension like it was i felt like the title was saying that there's something that is between what other people see as the world and then my existence and so trying to figure out what is that space or their realm and what happens in between, you know, the world and me? Like, what what goes on? What causes me to experience these things that the world may not necessarily experience, but I do? What causes, um, you know, what causes different thoughts, um, feelings, everything that I'm experiencing? What that the world may not be aware of. Uh, and I and I thought it was originally I thought it was just describing things that he had to endure that maybe people didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as you opened the book, what were what was your favorite part? So I'll just start there. What was your favorite part of the book? And then we can we can 
chomp it down. Chomp down the bits from there. Uh, for me, it was him describing his childhood and his upbringing and this cold of the streets in, in Baltimore. And um, one space in the book where he talks about uh, another kid pulls a gun out on him and his friend. And he, he detailed the kid's face, his eyes, like how he, the kid kind of hesitated at first to pull it out, but finally pulled it out. Mm-hmm. And he described like this innocence because it was obvious the kid didn't know what he, what he was doing. But then like this innocence became like this fiery rage off of, you know, a misunderstanding or the threat of, um, as he alluded to, someone taking advantage and taking your body. Like, I think that's where the the adversary is. It's it's the world in me, but the world doesn't understand that, that my body is equally as valuable as theirs. But then our community doesn't understand that our bodies are equally as valuable as one another's. And um, when he described that piece in the book and he described the kid's face and his eyes and the fact that you could be 13 or 14 or 35 or 55, there, there are always instances or environments where you could particularly lose your life. And it doesn't matter like how young you are, how old you are, if the uh, if if the person responsible was young or old, it's almost like you have to keep your head on a swivel constantly. And the fact that you have uh, young people, you know, barely teenagers, but teenagers nonetheless, that have to have that mentality as a survival tactic. Like we're in a we're in a very uh, sad space because what he depicted was like Baltimore in the late '80s, but what he depicted is like Baltimore now. And I'm like, that's that's crazy that even even for, with some of his references in the book, these same problems and the same mentality we have to keep our heads on a swivel right now within the, our current climate. And like you say, the book was written in 2015, but it was relevant in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, likely 2021. So I really, I really like the book, when someone writes and I can actually see in my mind what's happening, even when you talk about the little boy about to pull a gun on him, like I can visually see that. It made me think about moments in my life, not being in that exact situation, but being in something similar or knowing someone else who had been in it. And like, I can visually see the moment, I know where I was at, et cetera. And because of that, I really like the author, but in terms of if I had to pick my favorite part of the book, Y'all know I'm biased. 
is is when he talked about Howard University, but mainly because of the way he talked about it. It was one of these things, like in my mind, I always understood it as it, but I never knew how, how to articulate it the way that he did. So I'll kind of read, because I highlighted a certain section of it. He says, I was admitted into Howard University, but I was formed and shaped by the Mecca. So for, for folks who may not know, like, well, how, you know, people call it the Mecca, it's just like the shorthand or abbreviated version. So even using that line, I was like, okay, like, that's good. But I wonder, like, what, what does he mean by that? So he says, the institution was related, but it's not the same. Howard University is the, basically the higher education. The Mecca is the machine crafted to capture and concentrate the dark energy of all African people and inject it directly into the student body. The Mecca derives its power from the heritage of Howard University. And then it goes down below and it says, the history, the location, the alum, alumni combined to create the Mecca, the crossroads of the black diaspora. I thought that definition of it was just so kind of like spot on. And again, reading this book, what it really made me do was think about like my own childhood going like through like similar situations. And then even talking about uh, him talking about Howard University and like how he kind of matriculated through Howard, what he learned, not specifically in a classroom, but how so many different um, experiences shaped who he was. I don't know, I thought it was powerful. Um, and because of that, when we talk about what was my favorite part, again, it was really when he talked about uh, his time in college. I agree. That was, I, I think because it was, he was talking about his college experience, but it wasn't like what we typically would hear from someone talk about their college experience. And so for him, he, the brother can write, right? The, the usage of the words and metaphors and analogies, it, that was captivating to me. Um, the uh, repetition of the body, right? I, it hit different. Every time he said it, I was like, ah, add that to his, I mean, with his Baltimore um, slang or his vernacular, mm -hmm. like the tone in his voice. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, mm, I get it. Um, but listening to him talk about the college experience and it wasn't just about going to campus. It was about how he developed as an intellectual, mm -hmm. how he developed as a creative, how he developed um, as a black man that was surrounded by other black men and women um, that were all, you know, had different perspectives and experiences of life and how that all helped shape um, how he thought and how he saw the world. So that was, I, I would say that was my favorite part of the book. Um, what did you think about the format of the book? How he, it was a letter to his 15 year old son. What, like, how did that impact your perception or the, the, the reading of the book? It hit me, man. It hit me. It choked me up because it's all, it's, it was almost as if he was giving his son the talk mm -hmm. that all fathers and grandfathers and uncles and big cousins and big brothers have had to give and receive. Mm -hmm. But he was given the talk like, almost like it was too late. Mm 
like he 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 wanted his son to be shielded from all of the things that he witnessed growing up because he he referenced Mike Brown and then explaining to his son like why Mike Brown existed as a person but why the Mike Brown uh, fiasco was impacting him the way it was because I guess he made a reference that his son didn't want to believe that the people got off on killing him if even though it was on video and he's trying to almost hide, hide his son behind this uh, purple curtain but things beyond his control has ripped that veil in front of his son's face and his son has really seen the world for what it is and he's trying to He's trying to piece it together in a in a very eloquent way, and the, the letter hit me, man, because it's like, yo, I, I remember the the time, the date, the age I was um, when my grandfather gave me and a couple of my homeboys the talk, and that's because he had saw what was behind that purple curtain already. And he just wanted to prepare us from when the veil was ripped from our face. And so that it hit hard, man. It hit hard. It hit hard. But I felt sorry for I felt sorry for him because he was also trying to justify the world to his son or the way the world is. He was trying to justify that behavior. Even going back to, you know, describing his childhood that, you know, a, a certain street code is amoral. You know, it's not right or wrong. It just, it, it, it is. And you either are the lion or you are the antelope. And, and, and to be trained and brought up like that. And it, and I, I felt, I felt sorry for it for him because of all of the, the pain and emotion from him witnessing a friend of his uh, getting killed by police brutality. And then his son witnessing these things and having these same emotions, though his son is 15. And I guess at the time when he wrote this book, he was closer to, you know, what, 40, 45. Yeah, it, it, it hit hard for me, man, because I, I've, I've had to have, I've had to have a similar talk with my son who's only, he'll, about, he'll be 10 the end of the month. He'll be 10 years old. So I'm having this conversation with a nine-year-old based on George Floyd and then having to show him Eric Gardner that it's happened before and then having to show him Emmett Till because it's happened before. And it's the cycle of these talks that he's writing to his son that we, we constantly have to have but generation and generation and generation and generation. So we 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 are gonna give talks to our children that our great great grandfather gave to their children. Like, where's the change, man? It was sad. It it was it was a beautiful. It was beautiful the way he crafted like different stages of his life to to his son. But in each stage of his life, he was. You know, he uh, just a younger version of him was going through the same bullshit that his son is going through today. With all the education that he has and his his mom, his uh, son's mother has, and all of the 
uh, recognition that he has, he has to still have this same conversation with his son. His his success when he finally when he finally broke through as far as his craft and his passion, his success could not protect him and keep his son behind the curtain from seeing all of the all of the show. I agree a lot with what you said. I actually was writing down a couple of things to circle back to the question, Ron, that you asked. But first I'll say, you know, you don't strike me as somebody who get emotional quick. So for you to say that, I was like, okay. These words seem like they, they hit you uh, very hard. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He, he, uh, he like you said, he, 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 he was a painter. Yeah. He was a painter with words, man. It was very the imagery, the imagery that that the book provoked, man. It it was powerful. And I I do agree. I felt like it was like having like the talk. You know, you growing up, somebody having the talk with you, or you're having the talk with a son, a younger sibling, uh, a cut, a younger cousin, etc. Or if we don't want to use the word talk, like a series of just like conversations. Um, but it had me it had me thinking a little bit about like, you know, the talk. Because, you know, when I look back over my life, it, it, being an adolescent, let's just say on that part. You know, I don't ever really remember my dad having a talk with me. Right. My my grandfather, um, he was like living off in the Bahamas or like just elsewhere um, on my dad's side. And then on my mother's side, he had passed away. By the time I became got like in elementary school, I mean I was old enough to, you know, you get to that age where you you remember everything, um, but like he was he had passed away, and I actually, I think I had to talk by like my older cousins, which, you know how that go, they just telling you a bunch of stuff like making making up stuff what they believe etc. So that's funny because I haven't really thought about like the talk and like where I had that conversation, but I'll say this about like my father. Um, he was more so somebody like actions over words. I think he believed I don't have to always tell you stuff. I can show you and that should be suffice. But with that approach, it made me just think about did Was that better for me? Right. The fact that my dad didn't sit down and really talk to me, was I better off or would I have been uh, further ahead if my dad would have done more, something more traditional? Um, and I do think as I had kind of like went through my own share of things in life, where I remember my first encounter with uh, police, I was like just shocked, you know, mainly because some folks would say I was born into a life of privilege and to have that experience, I'm just like, why me? You know, I'm doing everything right. But again, I just didn't feel like I was prepared for it. So again, I don't know if I would have been better off if, if I would have had a more formal kind of like talk. But back to, you know, Ron's question, um, in terms of the format of how it was done, I feel like as the author, as the, if you want to call it painter, this is how he chose to tell the story. I didn't see anything wrong with the layout that he did. I think if we had to choose, like, is it A, B, or C, I think most people wouldn't say, hey, you should do it like this. Um, again, I think it was in some sorts of talk or like a series of like anecdotes of, or conversations 
that you're having with someone. But what I would say is more of like an unorthodox conversation about race. So instead of I'm going to throw race at you and just say, this is how black people was oppressed. I'm going to tell you stories out of three parts of my life to kind of show you how like black people, how I was oppressed back then and how black people are continuously being oppressed. Um, so I thought it, I thought he did a good job in using his mechanism to convey what he was trying to convey. Yeah. I, I think it, it heightened the impact for me. He could have wrote it as if it was a story, but because I knew that he was telling this story to inform his 15 year old son who is growing into a black man, like the stuff that he's going to have to face. Uh, it heightened, it heightened it for me. And then I was thinking like, well, damn, how would my life have been different had I had received a letter like this? talking to was good but like a, a letter that is eloquently detailed um at, at reading the book the first time i had to stop process unpack and reflect so it took me a very long time to finish the book because i had to keep going back to digest it and then i would read a few pages of it and then i had to sit with it i literally just had to sit with what i just processed but then I needed to go back because I was like, ah, I was focusing on one thing and I'm pretty sure I missed a lot. And so this last time I read it, I think this might've been the third or fourth time I, I did it with Audible. So I was able to follow along on the Kindle while Audible was reading. Um, and I, I found some more things that I didn't necessarily pull out the very first time. Um, and so I was, I was quite impressed with, um, as you call it, the mechanism of how he got the letter out. What are um, what were your thoughts around this quote? But race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy so much as one of, so, yeah, so much as one of hierarchy. I'll highlight that quote too, FYR. <laughs> It hit. It hit. What, what were yeah. your thoughts on that? I mean, race, racism isn't about color. Racism is about power. And there's a hierarchical structure to power. The difference is um, we are a race but we are a race within a country that has done a very, very poor job enforcing our identities onto us and what we should be and how we should be, right? And so that hierarchy of power, you know, racism, we didn't create racism. Black people did not create racism. Think about that. We didn't create racism. We are a product of, you know, our struggles within this country. We're a product of uh, our product of racism, but we didn't create this shit. So this, when you talk about systemic racism, it's like, well, okay, well, the the that's a, that's the baby, 
the, the big parent is the elephant in the room that nobody wants to address. And, it, and I think um, on social media, I saw a cartoon of them taking down the Stonewall Jackson statue in Richmond. And they were ripping down the Stonewall Jackson statue and the picture reflected almost like roots, like the cables that was holding the statue on top of the, the cement. It was like roots and the roots went into the ground. And so, yeah, you could snatch the statue away, but where did the roots come from that kept the statue afloat for all of these years? Like we got to talk about the roots versus the actual uh, symptom. And 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 it and it's frustrating. Like that that quote is frustrating to me, because I've I've been uh, I've sat on um, some DNI committees, you know, work related, and then all of this stuff happened with George Floyd and the protests and the, uh, and the unrest. Now, on as a as a as a black male on the DNI committee, now versus me contributing to making things better. Now you're looking to me to solve a problem that I did not create. But the problem impacts me. And you're ignoring the fact that it impacts me. But you're telling me to solve a problem that I didn't create. And I think in that quote, that's what he was trying to get to the heart of. We are a product of a country that has... Uh, not set us, set us up for success. We are a product of systemic issues that have plagued our fathers, their fathers, their fathers, and their fathers. We didn't cause it, but at the same time, we're protesting because we need people to with influence and that power to help us solve it. We're not gonna be able to solve it in a vortex on our own. You said that so eloquently. I'm going I'm to put it in very generic terms. One, obviously, <laughs> I highlighted this quote because I was like, oh, that's good. At the time reading it, I was like, I know it's a deeper meaning that I'm probably missing, but I'm like, oh, this is it's good. But essentially what, you know, just going off what you said, racism, I think we get so caught up in thinking that it's about race. It's about black and white. And I think what he's saying, look, it's not really about that. It's about creating division. And we can just get so caught up in the hues of our skin. And we take those things to make, a belief, make it believe or make, make belief in our mind that, you know, it's because this one has better hair than this one. This one has a fuller lips and this one has skinny lips. And it's like, no, it's not. You can use anything. Like, it's, it's just about creating a division. But us being so small-minded, we get so caught up in these other attributes and that's not really what the root of racism is about. Um, and I think the way that he, the way that it was just laid out, it was just said so eloquently, but if you don't break down what he said, you will read this and say, oh, that was said so well and still miss the point of what he was saying. Absolutely. So. I, I, I chuckled when I read that and I had to, I had to put the book down and, and once again, I had to sit with it. And I thought about it in terms of the hierarchy, individuals who feel 
or as he would often say in the book, who believe that they are more than others or that they are superior to others will name things and place emphasis on the inferiority so other people will soon subscribe to the thought process. The hood didn't get a bad reputation from the people that lived in the hood. The hood was, it became known as the ghetto from people from outside of the quote unquote ghetto. We didn't start calling the place that loved us, the place that groomed us, right? The place where we were able to exist without the interjection of white privilege. We, we didn't call that place a bad place. We didn't subscribe to any bad connotations of our hood. We don't subscribe to black on black crime. Which doesn't exist, but that's another topic. That's another topic. Right? And so it's like, when you really sit back and you think about how things that we have come to know as bad, it's like, well, why? Black magic, why is that considered, considered bad? Or black ball or blacklist? Like, what? Black hearted. Yeah, like just where did the term, you know, white is clean, black is dirty? Um, even when you go down, like we talked about this, I think you and I have chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream. I blew one of my colleagues' minds when I showed them what vanilla really looked like. <laughs> and I was like, not quite sure how you went through your whole entire adult life not knowing that vanilla is really black. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a dark brown. It's black. It's black. So it's a bigger I, word in that. I'll it's got pigment. That. It's got pigment. Look, for sure. It's a it's a bigger <laughs> word in that whole ice cream conversation. <laughs> and so I'm just like something so simple and surface level. Mm. You're missing it. Then you're not ready to have this conversation about race because you're stuck on the damn vanilla bean. Oh my life, I. I didn't know. Well, why? Well, why is it? Why is it that vanilla is white? Because everyone was loving chocolate, and so like now we gotta have something has to be separate. We can't just make another flavor and it looks like now we have to separate by the color, right? I'm thinking about when I did. Could you imagine me as an elementary science teacher? Stop it. No. I taught science as a part of my educational clinical experience. So for eight weeks, I was a science teacher. Eight long ass weeks. Yeah. And I did. Kid, them kids still got trauma to this hey, day. <laughs> hey, but they learned something. Them kids learned something. They go Video. be all right. Video for eight weeks. <laughs> so one of the experiments I did with them was the blind taste test. So it's easy to look at a bowl and you pick out the yellow and you think you're tasting yellow. But without your visual sense, can you tell me what flavor you're eating? And nine out of 10 chances, no one could do it. I said, okay, this one's pink. So then they would tell me that it tastes like strawberry. I said, actually, I just gave you a yellow. 
You don't know what something is until someone tells you what it is. Right. And so going back to this whole thing about racism and class and like hierarchy, people, you're not born to know that black is bad. Exactly. You're not. Exactly. You're also not born to know that white is good. You are conditioned that way. Somebody has to teach you these things. I think about when I was a kindergarten teacher. I think about watching the children interact. Everybody was everybody's best friend. They got mad because um, little Billy didn't sit by little Chris today. And so now Chris is mad because he feels like somebody else lost his friend. They didn't understand that you could have more than one friend, which was another conversation. But it wasn't until when parents were able to start visiting the classroom that they, when they found out that little Billy was black. Then, then there were problems about Billy playing with Chris and Billy doing that. And I was like, well, you ain't have no, you were sending snacks for Billy <laughs> before you saw that Billy looked like me, right? And so now we have a problem because you are now conditioning your child to have some type of forethought before they interact with individuals to let them know Yes, they may look different than me, but I don't need to treat them differently. And so when we, when we have this conversation about race, it's like, it's, it's not something that we created. It's not something that we were innately, you know, come out of the womb with. You taught me about this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, we talked about it in the book with like what social media portrays. The media is constantly telling you there's a difference, right? White people are glorified when they create crime. Black people are horrified when they create crime. And it's like, how, do, how, how is it that we are villains, but you all are saviors? How does that work, right? And I like how he calls it the, um, the costume of a killer when he was referring to the police officers that were getting away with murder, murdering innocent victims. Predominantly, men of color. And so when I think about the time that this book originally came out, there was the time where the, the police officers who murdered Michael Brown were exonerated. Mm -hmm. And I, and then I fast forwarded to the day. I'm like, damn, we still having this damn same, same conversation. Thing, man. Same thing. And it's and, like, and he, you it, talked about this clothing. He, and he, how he was describing like the Skittles uh, yeah. go back to describing a hoodie. To the, describing like the thing that media made a thing that was this negative thing, right? Oh well, uh, he had something in his pocket. Oh, but it was just it was a uh, it was a, a, a nest tea and a pack of Skittles, right? But I thought it was a gun. Yeah. Or he, you know he's a threat to society because he's selling Lucy's Lucy's on the street corner. Right. Like the. Oh, he has a counterfeit $20 bill. He deserves to die. It's a thing. It's a thing. He's got he a gun. He deserves to die. I, I think also, too, because when you're talking about innocence, it made me, I mean, you hit on the point I was thinking about in terms of, uh, Ron, you, when you were just saying that a lot of times, like, when you grow up in the hood or whatever, you, and I have like a vivid example. Um, just like things that you do, 
just as a kid, you think, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. It's not great until somebody tell you, oh, that was, that was garbage. Or that was nothing. I, I remember um, I started working. We went on a work trip. We went to Orlando and we was passing by. It was, we were going to a conference. We were passing by some hotels. Um, and I remember just being young. I used to get so elated about going to like the hotels that had the kitchens in them. And I, I would, I would tell me and my sons would be like, "Yo, is is this the hotel with the kitchen in it?" We like, oh, it's it's not. like, like suite. yeah, we like, oh, it's not. We gonna get, and um, and you know, I I had recalled. So I, when I was recalling it to my, uh, no, matter of fact, I didn't even say nothing about it. But I remember it being La Quinta's that will have like the the kitchens in it. I said nothing about this story, but I vividly remember, hey, I wouldn't take that childhood memory back for nothing. Me and my coworkers were passing by um, some hotels to get to the conference center, and they was like, La Quinta, I would never. And I was like, I was like hurt a little bit, mainly because it's just like, well, who says? Yeah, like, but I'm like, but who says where you went as a child was better than than where I went? And And to your point, we don't, we don't grow up thinking, okay, black is wrong, white is right, or this is this. It's until other people around us has put information in us that says, oh, this is wrong, or whatever experience, or whatever view or experience you had of this, that was the wrong experience. It should be X opposed to Y. And modern day, it definitely is the hoodie. Prior to the whole thing about him wearing that hoodie, I never thought twice about walking around in a hoodie like whip my hood on. I mean, I done, had done that so often, my head might be cold. I might have a do-rag on and I want my hood. Like, it's because that's what I wanted to do. Now, I legit have a second thought about when I'm walking around in a hoodie and where I'm at. Mainly because of not necessarily how I feel, but how am I being portrayed to other people? But, yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's like that about jogging. It's like that about Wearing your face mask, sleeping, you know, <laughs> sleeping, sleeping in your bed, and somebody kicking in your door. Oh, wrong house, my bad. Being in the wrong neighborhood, driving a car that's too nice, like breathing, everything. going to your job in a suit. I I, re- I remember when I was driving two students from the university. We were going to the Black Mill Summit at the uni- uh, University of Akron. I get pulled over in Ohio. Lady officer says, do you know why I pulled you over? I said, hello, officer. How's your day? She's like, oh, I didn't know we were having pleasantries. It's <laughs> like, well, get the ticket today. <laughs> do you know why I pulled you over? I don't. Could you, could you share with me the reason why you pulled me over? Do you, do you know how fast you were going? Nope. I wasn't looking at the um, speedometer. I was looking at the road. Um, so she's like, license registration. Okay, license registration. Came back, she goes, why are you dressed up? <laughs> so in my head, I'm just yeah. like, what the hell does this have to do? But then I was like, no. I look in the rear view mirror and two two brothers was in the back. One brother was in the back, one was beside me, but the brother in the back. Uh, and it was funny because they were sharing the story. They was like, <laughs> 
because they were both biracial. And he was like, at this moment, I didn't feel like I had a white mother. Mm. And I was like, oh, he's like, at this moment, she didn't look at me like she potentially could have been my cousin or aunt. Right. And so I look in the back seat and he's just looking at me like, <laughs> he had this look on his face like, do not give the response I know you really want to give. So I hid nodding and I said, well, this is what I wear to my office at the university. Um, but we're attending a leadership conference at the University Act. So then she walks back to the car. Now I'm just like, okay. She comes to the car, she goes, well, this is how fast you were going. At this moment, I'm like, are you giving me a ticket? Or are you like, I don't, I'm not about to, what, what do you want? <laughs> so she's like, but, um, you know, I don't believe that this was, this, this was habitual. I think you probably just weren't aware that you just crossed state line into Ohio. And uh, we drive a little differently here. And I wanted to be like, hell yeah, y'all don't drive with insurance. <laughs> y'all have to <laughs> drive. But it wasn't the time to be a comedian. So I, I, I just looked at her. So she said, I knocked it down uh, 15, 15, uh, 15 points so you don't get reckless drive. I said, okay. And she said, typically people say thank you. I was like, that was a kind gesture of you. Because I'm not about to say thank you and make you feel as if you are a white savior in this moment. Either you're going to give me the ticket, you're going to write me a warning, and you're going to go on your Barney Fife way. You got to figure it out. But what I'm not going to do is I'm, <laughs> I'm Karen, not giving... you Karen Fife way. <laughs> right. And so she gives me the ticket. And it was funny because she wrote the original speed on there, then she crosses it out. And I was like, you really think this is gonna uphold when I mail this shit in? Cause I'm not, I'm not coming back to Ohio to go to traffic court. I'm not. I'm just gonna pay it. I knew I was going over the speed limit, but the, in that moment, I was like, "What made you feel as if you could have this type of conversation? Like, if if one of the other ones were driving with their family members that kind of looked like you, would you have said the same thing?" Would you have taken this tone like I'm doing you a favor? And, and oftentimes, like I, I play all of these things through my head. I'm just like, why is it that the treatment is different because we look different than you? And it's and that's really it, because the person didn't like the officer, she didn't know my personality, my character. She didn't know if I was carrying heat in the trunk under the seat. You can None have a that. white mother. See, I could. I could you be a doctor. You could married to a wife. I mean, a, a white woman. Like I could. Know. Her niece. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? Yeah. She could have been sister. my auntie. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it's just like, we, I always ask people, like, well, what made you, what made you respond to me this way? I ask colleagues, un, un, uh, let's give it, say a bad term, white colleagues. I ask them, what, what made you say that in response to my question what made like what conversation did you just have internally that said oh yes this is what i should say to him because he'll get it well i just thought you assumed okay we're with you right and so like i had to start checking individuals and you know it's hard as hell to check your white colleagues when you're the only black colleague that they have there you go and be I'm, the angry black colleague yeah, that they have. of which i typically <laughs> surmounted to 
And I'm like, damn, I, if I, and in my head, and I was already, I already hit play internally. So I couldn't hit rewind. Like I had to follow through with this. Like I've, I've interrupted this meeting. I've caused the scene. Now I got to finish. And then I got to walk out mad because like, I'm on the 12th floor and ain't no black people in this building to about level four. So I got to get in the elevator to get around some people that's going to help me out if shit pop off. But I always, I question stuff. One of the CEOs said something and he went to pat me on my head. Bruh, you know. <laughs> you on your head, B? I was sitting down and he went to like pat me. Like a dog? Like, Bruh. I said, oh, oh. Oh, what were you about to just do? Because oh, I was about to tell you a good job. I said, well, you like can Like he my... your father? Nick. <laughs> what? And I don't, I don't even let that Negro touch my head. Like, so the fact that you think you was going to pat me on my, like, good dog, that a boy? I said, oh, 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 what, what were you about to do? And so in front of the senior leadership, I had to have this awkward conversation. And in my head, I was like, I probably ain't going to have a job next week. But I know I had saved him from touching my head. And, and so then I said, what made you think that that was appropriate? Do you like to be patted on your head? Don't answer that, because you look like you do. And, and then my colleagues are looking at me like, ah, you added too much, too much on it. I was like, no, no, now I hit play, had to follow through. But I'm thinking like, in terms of- But is that the normal, but is that the normal interaction with other colleagues, if they do a good job patting them on their head or is that no just, no i've never I, I, I never patting anybody on no their i head. agree no i agree <laughs> i agree maybe but a child like, if they little <laughs> i don't even do that but no <laughs> you should never pat nobody child, on their head <laughs> if i do it to a child and the child sees me as someone that loves him and respects me and honest like reveres me like he's going to think that that's an appropriate behavior so i i don't do that and so i'm like i stop my friends um my friend has a son and his, his little friend, Tommy, right? Little Tommy. Tommy's mom was getting ready to pat his, the, the, my, my son, my friend's son on the head. I pushed that little thing just out of the head. Hey, did he have something in his hair? She was like, no, I was just saying it was good to see him. I said, well, you, 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 you speak with your mouth, not with your hand. Oh, you, sh you can shake his hand. He know how to shake hands. High five. High five. Boys and, <laughs> well, boys and girls club hug. You know, the hugs <laughs> that you do from the side. But I'm just like, oh, no, no. Don't, don't ever do that again. And so then I had to teach. I had to make it uncomfortable because little Tommy sitting there red, get ready to cry. My friend, my friend's son is sitting there like, what the hell just happened? My friend is trying to save the situation. The mom is getting loud. I was like, that ain't what you want. That ain't what you want. And then I had to explain, how would you like for me to pat your son on his head? Like he did a good job. And she's like, I think I understand. No, I don't need you to think. I need you to get under this standing right here. I need you to get under this standing. And don't don't ever do this shit again. And don't and and like don't allow your son to do some stuff like this. This this and this is why y'all can't hang out no more. And I ended the friendship. I felt bad. But I'm like, nah, you you can't play with little, little Tommy's only friend, man. You can't okay. play with little Tommy if little Tommy's parents are like this, because soon little Tommy's going to start to do the stuff he sees at home, and then I got to fight little Tommy. I don't I don't mind fighting the kid, but I think it's illegal. I think it's illegal. Yeah, you going to jail? Definitely going right. to jail. And so I'm trying to prevent all of that. And so like I just 
I always have these questions and like, so I'm listening to the stuff that he's saying in the book and I'm just like, what gives people like the thought to just treat people different just because they look different? Is it what they were taught? Yeah, or just like make these assumptions and then like when you check them on it, (laughs) they look at you like you wrong. I never, I never... And now we're in this weird space because everyone wants to scream Black Lives Matter. Everyone wants to like paint sidewalks and change street names and, and you know, send out messages to their shoppers that we, we're in solidarity, but they don't really want to say Black Lives Matter. Um, and I'm like, yo, we, we, we want a system change, not a symbol change. But you got your little pretend uh, allyship for the next two weeks because you shared a few posts and then you feel like you can come to the cookout. But the conversation of the hierarchy was real, and he he illustrated it often, especially when he went back to the body. And one quote that I want to ask you all about was when he said, when you learn how to live within your body. What, what did you gather from that? Bro, it's like, <clears throat> it's like w- w- walking on a tightrope. It's like walking on a tightrope with no nets under you. And depending on how you maneuver your body left or right, that that means your survival or your or your end. And and as as going from a teenager to becoming a man, to becoming a husband, to becoming a father, like you have to you have to learn how to adjust your body at each stage. Because it requires different movements. But nobody has given us like the, the how to not to get shot by the police uh, solution. Nobody has, nobody has created uh, a guidebook on, uh, you know, how, how not to walk through Bloomingdale's and not be profiled. Nobody has, nobody has created that, that, that secret sauce yet. And so we're constantly trying to adjust and, and learn how to maneuver within our bodies and within this space, not to lose our body. And that's a constant frame of mind that we have to have as black men literally every single day. And he and go, going back to the book when he said, you know, you, you're either not violent enough or you're too violent. Those are the spaces that we exist as black men. You're either not violent enough or not street enough, or not tough enough, right? Or you're a menace to society. And the crazy part is like what you talked about earlier, Brother Jay, how society will place their their bias and their perspectives of what you are onto us. And, you know, in the situation where you're talking about you being the only person of color in a meeting, you know, I've been in situations where I've all I've been the only person of color in the meeting, and trying to preface my words and articulate my point or articulate my frustration or a, to articulate a difference of opinion, and constantly have to figure it, figure out how to how to uh, feed medicine and make it sweet enough so that they can take it, versus just saying shut the fuck up listen because what you're saying doesn't make fucking sense because when you go that far then it's like oh 
this nigga's crazy. <laughs> or if you say, well, you know, well, you know, you know, you know, Karen, I really think, uh, I, I, I really think, um, you know, what you said makes sense. So maybe we just go with your idea. And that's not me saying that it's a good idea. That's me not wanting to create friction and conflict because Karen is entitled to privilege to walk through the world gracefully mm-hmm. and get everything that she's supposed to get because she's a white woman. Yeah, and I, you and I, you know, when we used to work at the same place, we've experienced similar, similar uh, situations where we just, you know, we, we went along just to get along. And one, it was like, yo, she goes, well, you... <laughs> one particular instance was like, well, you said it was a good idea. I said, no, no. I never said that. I said, okay, let's do it. She goes, well, that was you agreeing with. But I said, no, no. I was tired of hearing you talk. And so if we said, let's do it, that meant you were going to do more working and not talking. I didn't like your idea. I still think it's a dumb idea. But at this point, I'm not invested in either. So let's just get it over with and then get on to the next task. But then they wanted to have a conversation about why I didn't think it was a good idea. It doesn't doesn't matter. Wonder why? Because for every part of your project, I can tear it apart and tell you why it won't work because I have education experience and exposure and you just got this position, you know, in search of a degree (laughs) and in search of experience and exposure to this. But because of who you know, you got this role. So I'm not invested in this. I don't. But what I do know is we got 15 minutes before I'm I'm supposed to go pick up my Chick-fil-A. So let's wrap this up. Right? I didn't have I didn't have any cares. And I and I I think people wanted they wanted us because they knew our voice had value and weight at our particular location. And so it was like, hey, if they agree with it, then everyone else will. I'm not agreeing to this shit. What I am agreeing to is that you're wasting my time. But they weren't ready for those types of conversations. And so we, as people of color, often know how to avoid certain situations. If I know this is going to be smoked, it ain't even worth it. I hate this idea. I don't think it works. It goes against everything I stand for. But you know what? At this moment, I'm going to be the only one fighting against this or providing any type of resistance. So we just going to go along to get along. Cause I need my check next Thursday. Like the rest of them. Yep. Cause I, <laughs> I got I rent. The rent is coming out of this check. And if I don't get this check, then the, he ain't going to get no rent. And that's another problem. And so we, we, we do this often, but there was another quote that I really, really wanted to bring. And it said at the same time, whiteness is a powerful social force, a descriptor for a community of those who have maximum power and minimum responsibility. Those who have the power to take the lives of others without punishment. Maximum power and minimum responsibility. Our current executive branch of government. Maximum power, absolutely. Minimum responsibility, right? Prime example. They're not held accountable for different actions and they're not going to feel the impact of those dumb actions. 134,000 dead. Yeah. Not accountable, not responsible. Don't really not, care. No, it's not that big of a deal. Came from China. That's how he says China. Came from China. And it's like, regardless of where it comes from, we need to get it out of here. <laughs> like, we need to do what we need to do. But 
once again, you know, that maximum power um, and minimal responsibility. I, and then I started thinking about other individuals in leadership, whether it's on the local front, whether it's in, within the community. And I was like, maximum power, minimum responsibility. I started thinking about times I was working on a team project or within a group and how the person that had the maximum power always walked away with the least amount of responsibility. And I was like, man, this is, this is, this is crazy. And so my question stemming from that is when were you first made aware of your racial identity? I would say for me, um, it was in middle school. So just to give a little context, my mom was like the first one in her family to go off to college, uh, full scholarship, track scholarship. You know, my mom has a MBA and she's worked for Fortune 500, et cetera. My dad and my mom, I think we talked about this before, <laughs> they were high school sweethearts and my dad, he grew up in a communal, communal family, meaning that he grew up in a large house where his, two of his aunts all had like four or five children and they all kind of like grew up in one big house. So, you know, when my parents got married, obviously my dad married up, but not to take any, anything away from my dad because my dad's always been a hard worker. He has legit even though he doesn't have any um, post high school formal education, the amount of money my dad makes, like you can't make it without not having a degree at this point. So between both of my parents, they wanted to have a better life for us, which means owning the house. You know, a lot of people on my dad's side of family, they don't, they don't own. And they, even growing up, it's like, oh, y'all rich. And it's like, no, we're not. <laughs> We just, we just live, you know, regular neighborhood and we happen to, you know, own, own this home or we're in a process of owning because it ain't like it's paid off. So in doing that, they made sure at, when I was younger, I did the old private school in like elementary years. And um, because my dad had worked for the school board, one of the perks of that was my parents could literally select what school they wanted us to go to and we can get a waiver to go to that school. So what that meant is I lived in an all black neighborhood, but I went to school with people who did not look like me. And I didn't think it was an issue until I start like going to these schools and it was middle school is when I, um, I would say I went to the first predominantly um, white school, which meant in terms of black folks, it probably was 10%, 15% black people. I remember one day, and so just, just to give you, in terms of my parents, my mom, very professional. My dad, he can be professional, but in reality, my dad will cuss you out and he don't care. He, he don't care who you are. He don't care where he at. So. Real down to earth, brother. Yes. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> Get I, it I, how you live it, baby. That's it. Get I, it how you live it. I like when both my parents show up because one going to be professional and when that ain't working, my dad gonna be like, forget all this, get all this. <laughs> and I'm gonna leave the explicit out of this conversation, but he gonna get right down to business. So I remember in middle school, um, we was in PE and I can't, I can't remember exactly what happened. I was in like seventh grade, we was in PE 
and we were doing something that we weren't supposed to be doing. I don't know what it was, but on this particular day, our punishment was we were on the basketball asphalt. I'm from Florida. It gets hot. We're on, at the basketball asphalt. We did something we weren't supposed to be doing, and she had us basically planking on the asphalt while it was hot. So <laughs> That's child abuse. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, yo, like my, I was like, my hands hurt, like my hands hurt, and I were, I think she had told everybody else that they can get up. Mind you, this PE teacher was white, so. By the time I was able to get up, like I legit had not nothing like severe, but I had blisters on my hands. I called my parents because I was like, yo, they got me out on this asphalt. My hands got blisters. My dad was like, oh, no, you don't. I'm like, yes, I do. So essentially, it might have been the next day or it might have been that afternoon. Both of my parents was down there. And I remember as the whole thing was going on. In that moment, I was like, why would you single me out when other folks were doing that? And other folks, it was like other white kids was doing it. Like, why did you single me out? And I remember sitting there asking her that, like, why did you single me out? And we're in the, we were in the, um, the principal's office or whomever's office. And essentially she was just lying. And in that moment, I'm just like, ma'am, that's not how it happened. Like, and my dad, you know, it, it was a thing of like, pulling rank where he was like, look, I work for the school board. I will be down at the superintendent's office tomorrow if this is a problem. Long story short, um, everything was kind of like rectified in its own manner. But it was like in that moment, that's when I realized like, yo, because I am a, my, my skin is different than someone else's, this world is like treating me different. And I think before that, I never had experienced that. Even like at this school, I probably was in like the top 5%, probably top three, less than that. But that's when it hit me like, yo, it don't matter what your parents do. It don't matter if you come from a good household, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, this world will, will single you out. And essentially, I don't want to say you got to like take it, but it's almost like until help comes to save you, you are legit there by yourself. It was no other kids that was who had my back and I'm, and I'm not necessarily faulting them for that, but it was like, it's me out here on this island and my parents thought they were sending me to this school that was best for me. But in that moment, I'm questioning why they even got me traveling an hour to get here. And these folks treated me like less than one fifth. That was my aha moment for me. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll give a second story of what something that happened in middle school in my same neighborhood. I think growing up, like, you know, having a, a bicycle, that's one of them things. Like when you when you get your bike and you first start riding it, like nobody can't tell you nothing. You riding everywhere. You riding all up in the neighborhood. It's almost like, you know, getting your first car. And I remember when I got you my bike. got to keep the bike clean, though. You yeah, got to keep the bike clean. Yeah, man. Look, I had pegs. Bring it on with you. Better bring it back with you. Right. <laughs> I had pegs, everything. And there was a Wendy's in my neighborhood. Yo, I used to love Wendy's. That dollar menu, frosty, junior bacon, nugget, and a fry. Like $5, that's all I needed. So it was nothing for me to be home and like ride my bike to Wendy's. I'm so, so this hungry right now. <laughs> like, 
yeah, we can't we can't even support we can't even support Wendy's no more, man. I I've been stopped eating there, but thank you. <laughs> but that frosty used to hit, boy. But um, <laughs> I'm riding my bike to go to Wendy's, and this Impala. I'm riding on the sidewalk. This Impala literally cuts me off of my of my pathway. Four men jump out of the car, all of them either white or fair skinned, and like literally two in the front, two in the back, one on the side. Where are you going? I'm like, what? Where are you going? I'm like, yo, I thought they was trying to really abduct me. I was like, hey, I ain't about all that funny business. I don't know what y'all trying to do. Like, get, I was like, get off my bike. And I remember being like literally out of breath because I'm like startled. It's like five five people jumping out of an unmarked car. And they legit put me in handcuffs. I am a middle schooler on the side of the road trying to go to Wendy's. I'm in handcuffs trying to go to a dollar menu. Ain't never done nothing wrong. I'm an A student. And I'm just like, I, like I'm literally there like, I cannot believe this is happening to me right now. Long story short, somebody had robbed a house or broke into a house and they was looking for this person. When I tell you this person ain't look nothing like me, they had braids, they were way darker than me, like look nothing like me at all. They basically had me on the side of the street telling me stop resisting, stop resisting. You ain't even telling me you know cops. By the time you put these handcuffs and got me sitting there, I'm putting two and two together. I'm legit have to just stay there and kind of like wait. They ran like the, all the stuff they had to run. It was like, okay, you're not the person we looking for. Took the cop, took the handcuffs off, and I'm like asking them for like their badge and stuff information. They like whatever. This little kid hop in the car and they leave. End up not even going to Wendy's. Appetite was just like forget it. I go back home. I'm telling my parents and. I feel like, you know, it's like when your first encounter, you know, like how you feel when something is going on. And I just feel like my parents just didn't understand. I, in my mind, I know they did, but maybe they were just, they, they have lived a life where they're used to it. And this is my first encounter. I just feel like in that moment, I'm like, start the revolution right now. And they was just like, hold up, brother. And I'm just like, no, like I was in the right, they were in the wrong. And that's when I realized like, yo, this world that I have grown up in, this is not the same world that I'm like used to. When I walk outside of these doors, like I just don't feel safe. And I feel like at that moment, that's when from, in terms of police, I understood my role and I understood their role. I'm not gonna be rude and, and disrespectful, but to your point about, to, to the story you were saying earlier, if you're trying to give me a ticket, just go ahead and give me the ticket. And I'm gonna pay for it, I'm gonna go to court, but all this back and forth, we don't gotta do all that. You pulling me over for speeding? Don't do me no favors. Give me this ticket, I can go about my business. But all the extra back and forth, we don't even have to do, we don't have to do none of that. Don't do me no favors. And that is really when I, I figured out that this world is different for black folks. Well, it's, it's, two, it's two stories, one is, one is kind of comical. Um, the other, the other, uh, it's, it's not as uh, intense <laughs> as Jeff's story. But uh, the first time I realized that I was black 
was at a preschool, like a preschool, like the pre the school before kindergarten. Pre-K. Like a, yeah, like a pre-K school, right? I didn't know that's what you called it. Um, but I remember the school, man, it was Chesapeake Avenue Preschools in the South Norfolk section of Chesapeake. And I went to school every day, right? Went to school every day. Uh, light school. And then um, picture day came about. And, you know, you take, you know, how you have all the little big head kids. You take your class picture all tight in together, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm in the, and they put me in the middle. Put me in the middle. Snap the picture, and I think nothing of it. I go back talking to the little friends in the school, minding my business. Uh, come home, forget about it. Picture come out, and like my grandparents are like laughing. I remember them laughing. I remember my mother laughing at this picture, and the reason they were laughing is because. I was the only black kid in the picture, right smack dab in the middle. And then as I got older, I'm like, yo, why the hell would they send me to an all-white preschool? Because <laughs> like, they, th- the, they the think we're getting a better wrong? education. They, no. they think we're getting a better education. No, I'm like, why would you do that? <laughs> so, in the milk. No, and so, uh, you know, but, but to your point, Jeff, that's why they did it, you know, for, for like a simulation because they were trying to figure out, like, you know, they knew I was smart. Like, should I go to a private school or, or whatever? And I don't know. I just think they put me in the environment because either people say you can't flourish or I'm not supposed to flourish. And um, the next the next time that I realized, like, yo, it's, it's, it's a different beast. It's a different animal. I was in the seventh grade. And I had this, um, this black math teacher. I believe her name was Miss Benson. And um, <laughs> not like seriously, like that's not that's legit. Miss like, Benson was she, re- was she related to Benson? No, 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 no. It was I believe her name was Miss Benson, and um, in her math class, you know, I excelled, did well, or whatever. You know, I was a pretty decent student throughout middle school, high school, or whatever. But um, Miss Benson like sends a letter home to my mom. And wants me to get into an honors, the honors math class, right? And I'm like, well, why do I have to change classes? I'm doing well in the class. Mm-hmm. All my friends are in this class, and Miss Benson trying to make me go to another class. Like, yo, what, what, what type of shit is this? And me not realizing one of the comments that I believe, and Miss, as I mentioned, Miss Benson was black. One of the comments she made is that. Teachers in the school system, they don't recommend kids like Kevin for the honest track classes. They, they, don't, they don't recommend kids like Kevin. And as a result, so, you know, the way, I, I don't know, it was this big thing in like the early 90s where you, they tried to create like these cohort, po- cohort pods of students. So it'd be like, 40 kids, but you're part of one team umbrella. And then within that 40 kids, you alternate all of your class schedules within that 40 kids. I think we was at the same school. Now, <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, the teachers had to meet 
like to vote on whether or not I should be able to go into the honors class. And so I go into the honors math class as kind of like a test kind of thing, blow that out the water. So then they're like, oh, well, he needs to be in all honors classes. Now, mind you, I'm extra pissed because, you know, it's either, it's either cute black girls in the class, which is cool, and nothing but white folks. Nothing but white folks. Mind you, I- We was, I, at, we was at the same school. I'm growing, up, <laughs> I'm growing up in an all black neighborhood. I go to an all black church. I like all black stuff. <laughs> I don't want to take no classes with y'all if I don't have to. But this is me because I'm not being exposed. But that was the one, that was like the first time like I realized, damn, we are different. And depending on who lives uh, we encounter and what paths cross, that determines our ability to work up that hierarchy that Coach was talking about in the book. Like somebody has control of your body and your ability to get the best education possible because their bias exists mm -hmm. that states otherwise that you're not qualified to do these classes or to do this kind of program. And you know, me being in higher ed for 20 years right now, it's like, yo, Miss Benson kind of changed the trajectory of like me being college ready. Like me being college ready. And my, my, my mother and my grandparents had the foresight to put me in like these obscure <laughs> environments because I needed that level of exposure based on the talent that they saw in me. But the ill thing is like the public school system has control of our bodies. Like he talked about it in the book that the school system was worse than the streets. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. And our ability, and our ability to get a fair education that will then impact our economic well-being, that shit comes down to a decision over somebody who, who more, more than likely they don't look like us, they're not where we're from, they don't have the same set of experiences, the same kind of encounters, the same kind of trauma. And in that pen or that rubber stamp that they have, they have possession of our body, man. And that is the coldest thing I took from the book. Like, damn, we have to be in these. If it wasn't for Howard, would, if, it, if it wasn't for Howard, where would he be? If his dad, if his dad wasn't a researcher at the how at the how at the library at Howard, if his dad wasn't a researcher at the library at Howard, where would he be? Access. With that level of access. We don't, we as people, as black people, we don't have that level access. of access, man. Facts. Facts. We don't have that level of 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 yo, I can pick up a phone and call somebody at a public Ivy or Ivy League school and they know somebody that knows somebody. Right. If you do, give them my name. I'm trying to. It's crazy. Because at some moment in time, as black men, as black people in America, specifically as black men, somebody has had control of our body or the decision-making process as to what happens to our body. Whether it's the education we get, the, the, the prison system that you're trying to lock us up in, the, the, uh, the, the, weak two-party system that we have to vote on that maybe depending on which side you look at it nine times out of ten neither side really has a black agenda or a black interest but we got to vote and roll with the lesser of the two evils because we have to play within this system that has control of our body 
I think you you hit on some key things and it just made me think about my own life. Um, my kid is very short. When I think about what portion of my life I've experienced the most, I don't want to call it racism, but knowing that, look, you black, it's been in education when I think about it. A lot of my encounters, obviously it's been stuff outside of that, but it's education. The only um, antidote I was going to say, because I'm like, our, our middle schools were a lot similar. And it was funny because mine was, it was a little bit different. I was on that, that whole cohort. I we did the same thing. We you, essentially the same kids. You went to the same classes on the same team. You just rotated throughout the day. And I remember I was on an honors team, but I guess it was levels. So I don't know. Let's just say, you know, it's an honors team, but this is the smartest or this is level A. And then you got A, B, and C. I don't know which one I was on before, but they thought I was excelling too much. And it was like, I, I recommend him. They said, I recommend him for the higher team, like the highest one we got. And to your point, I was like, the only black kids here are on this team. Like, I don't really want to be on this other team. So reluctantly, I'm on this team. The team that I was on previously, I think a lot of people wasn't doing the work. So I had to focus a lot more. When I got moved to the environment where everybody was kind of working, I can, it was easier for me to work, but it was also, I could like be more of myself. Do you know when I got to this team, they legit started telling my parents, he's like acting out. I just don't notice, like, they didn't, they, they, I remember them saying they don't know who I was. They was like, he just doing a lot of stuff that we not used to. And I remember sitting down with my parents like, because I have an identity, because I'm now like talking, like now it's an issue. I feel like in the beginning, because everybody was, I won't say so much lower, I was almost hiding the fact that I was smarter. But now that I'm, I'm in a room of smart people, we all smart. So I don't have to hide it no more and I can just be who I am and just say what's on my mind. They saw it as me being, being defiant. And you know, earlier on, it was just a lot of just bumping of heads like throughout that. But yeah, when you talk about the whole higher ed thing, I don't know, it just hit home for me in that regard. I, I would say that I had a few encounters with the moment where I was like, oh shit, black man. Um, one was a kid when, um, and my principal, my principal. So my, the school system in my County, uh, where I went to elementary school, it was K through three. Then I went to an intermediate school, which was four, five, and six, then junior high, seven, eight, nine, and then high school, 10, 11, 12. So in the intermediate, you know, my principal, he was at, at the age of, you know, 33. He was a cool ass white dude, man. He was he was a cool dude, um, Mr. Willingham. So he's probably not listening. But if he ever finds this, you know, shout out to Mr. Willingham. Cool ass principal, right? Um, there was a situation where a student accused me of doing something that I didn't do. The teacher believed the student. So I get sent to the principal's office and he offers me a piece of candy on his desk. And then I, you know, I, I give this, this referral and he was like, come with me. So he takes me to the teacher and he's having a conversation. 
she was it was her planning period, so she had attitude. Um, he didn't care. He just stormed in and had a conversation. He said, "Now I want you to tell me what part of this did you see him actually do?" And so she's she regurgitated what she put down on the form. He's like, "This is interesting." He said, "Because when this situation happened and I saw what happened, he was he was a recess." And you, you were nowhere to be found, so you wouldn't have seen it. He said, so now I'm giving you the opportunity to, one, apologize, and then make this right. So she defended her stance. He said, I'm not asking. I'm telling. And so from that point forward, the teacher had an attitude. And so he said to me, he says, and if you were ever treated differently from this point forward, you don't have to stop at the front desk. You come straight to my office. So I, one, I wanted to be like in your face, but I'm still like turmoil. Like I'm upset that she actually said, oh yes, this is what he did. I saw him and you weren't even around. And like, I wasn't even around. I was not at the scene of the crime when the crime took place. And he, luckily, he was a man of integrity and he was like, you couldn't have seen him do this because he was not there. And I actually saw what happened and you weren't there. And so it was like, man, what would have happened had he had not been observant or cared to say, no, you were incorrect. Thinking of like, what would have went on my student record and then what record, because you know, your record precedes you. What would that have looked like when I went to the next school? How would I had interactions with teachers? Um, I had one incident in high school where I was looking for, I had my English class change. I was going to AP. And one of the teachers who luckily I didn't have to take, um, I asked, I was like, hey, where is such and such classroom? She was like, what do you need to go there for? For class so she's like let me see your schedule so not only like she didn't just want to take my word for it because this teacher only taught ap and so she's like are you sure this is correct <laughs> so i'm just like wow so she walks me to the guidance office to make sure that my schedule is correct Aaron. luckily i had a luckily i had a black guidance counselor and so she was like yes it's correct because i put him in there she was like oh i was just making sure because we had a lot of students that had some schedule at uh, errors so then she apologized and blah 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 but ever since this day and i saw her a couple weeks ago in walmart um and i started to take her lysol wipes out the cart but i knew we was in a moment of pandemic my oh. last story <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you speak did I, to her hell no no hey the no. mask on he couldn't <laughs> no. but even if i didn't have it on i like would have walked up to her and just jumped at it like that <laughs> Remember me? My yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or as, or as uh, Brother Coach said in the book, what's up now, nigga? <laughs> <laughs> what's up now? What's up now? My last story is um, I was one of the, the top educational um, leaders of this summer program. In, in humble terms, I was running shit, right? I'm the youngest one on my team. And 
you have a lot of people that don't look like me dropping their kids off for about seven days on the college campus. Um, not too many people had problems, but you know, for one, one, one of my students, her mom was one of the VPs at Bad Boy at the time. Okay, so it was one of these these places. So there was an issue that needed to be addressed, and so she goes to one of the interns that looked like her and says, hey, I need this fixed. Can you help me? She goes, yes, but you're going to have to see the executive director. And she points in my direction. I'm the only one there in a white polo. Every other staff member had on blue, but all senior leadership had on white polo so you could easily identify who do I go to when I have a big problem. She's a man standing at the end of the table in the white polo. Who do you think she goes to at the table? You. <laughs> in, a, in a dream world, she goes to someone that looks like her at the opposite end of the table and repeats her problem. And she says, Ronald's at the other end of the table. You have to go down. So I'm watching this happen. I wave. She was like, points. That's who you need to go talk to. She goes to the next person. Now, the funny part of the story is, by the time you get to me, you've gone through about seven different ethnic groups and nationalities. And it was kind of like each person got a darker hue. And then when she finally gets to me, I said, oh, well, I guess you ran out of options. Mm. And everyone else is looking at me. And I'm just like, no, I need, I need her to know that I saw what you did and you're about to leave your child with me for seven days. Acknowledgement. Right. And so she just looked at me. I said, yeah, no, no, no. I watched you when you walked in and you were directed straight to me, but you chose to go through all of my teams <laughs> to get to me because you didn't want to, you didn't want to have a conversation with me. How can I help you? Well, I just needed to correct. I said, okay, cool. But if you were directed to me first, why would you go through nine different people? So at this point now, I'm going to help you, but I want you to feel like an asshole. And so the little girl, she looks, she was so embarrassed. She felt so bad. She was like, mom. I was like, ah. So the dad comes in because evidently registration was only supposed to be 10 minutes. It was drop off. Love you. Bye. Let's go. So he comes in with attitude. He was like, what is taking so long? So I'm looking at him like, if he swing, I'm taking him down. And so she then starts to say that I've been raising my voice and I don't want to help her. And he says, <laughs> he's like, I know you well enough to know that typically you're the one that raises your voice. <laughs> and so he said, hi, my name is, said his name, shook my hand. He was like, what seems to be the issue? I said, like, well, your wife, and I, they, I played the whole entire story back. This is what she did. She started down all the way there after she was directed, blah, blah, blah. And this is what she said to me. And now I'm waiting for her to tell me what the, real, the original problem is so we can solve it. So Madison here can have a great seven days with me and my staff. So he looks at his wife. And at this point, he's fuming. He apologizes to me like seven times. He was like, I, he, know, I, he knows his wife is a seven times 70. That's what it should have been. He knows his and wife I, is a bigot. <laughs> and I said, I said, sir, I don't really want your apology. He said, I know, but she's going to, she's going to apologize too. She goes, I will not. He said, you will. <laughs> so at this moment, my staff is sitting here like, <laughs> you breaking up happy homes, man. <laughs> Yo, and you got kids running around. Everyone's yeah. excited. Little Madison still ain't been able to go play yet. He was like, let her hand go. 
she's staying, and you're going to apologize to not only this man, his whole entire team. And so she begrudgingly apologizes. I said, I acknowledge the word apology that you came that came out of your mouth, but I do not accept it. Would you enjoy the rest of your stay here? And we'll see you in seven days. So you want to know what I did? We sent pictures home. We created a slideshow every night so parents could log on to the site and they can see slideshows. And we made it point that every child got photographed. But when Madison got photographed, Madison was surrounded by my direct reports and they all looked like us. <laughs> and we pointed to the camera, we would wave. Sometimes we'd send video and Madison's face would just be like full of joy. And like her dad would like respond to the slideshow. He was like, oh my God, this is great. She's, she's having a good time. I said, yeah, she drew a picture and she wanted her mom to see it. So we made sure we took this picture for her mom. And so, you know, all, all the black staff was holding it. And so we had one staff, uh, she was, uh, she was Puerto Rican. She's like, no, 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 no. This will make it even better. And so then Madison got on her back and Madison was like this and like all the staff members, like it was, it was great. I still have this picture and I'm reminded of just how petty I can be. Even when I'm in a uh, position of privilege, like I'm thinking back to my college class, African-American literature, when we did a poem, we, we evaluated a poem and the title was Remember You Still a Nigger. And I and it was like John was being freed as a slave because, you know, the Juneteenth happened. <laughs> like emancipation happened. Slavery was gone. And the family was happy for John. They was like, John, you gotta go. You're free now. And John's getting dressed. He's saying, Yes, ma'am. And she goes, John, you know, you've been a strong worker and you've been kind and we're gonna miss you. But remember, you're still a nigger. And so she goes on and gives all of these positive characteristics of John as John is walking away and waving. And the last thing she said, you know, go do your thing, but remember that you're still a nigga. And so it's like, there's always this level of limiting power that they want to exert. Like, yeah, you may be the executive director, but I'm still going to talk to your intern because I don't think you deserve that position. And and I'm reminded about that. I'm, I mean, I'm reminded of that a lot of times when I walk into places where I'm the only one that looks like me. I was invited to speak on a college campus and I, I could count the brothers and sisters of melanin on one hand with a broken thumb and pinky. <laughs> and so I'm in here like, wow. And like students was loving it. Faculty, not so much. And I was reminded one of the, the, the chief uh, academic officer or the provost came to me. He was like, yeah, he's like, yeah, you're pretty good. You're pretty good. Um, so he was like, where did you, where did you go to learn how to speak like that? <laughs> and I froze like, uh, what are you, what are you trying to ask? He was like, yeah, he's like, that, that, that has to be something that was taught. He was like, you were polished and he was like very articulate and blah, blah, blah. I said, that's, that's how I talk on a regular basis. He was like, oh, I thought you went to like, maybe you were like a communications major or like a drama major and you like learned how to do this and blah, blah, blah. Like the vocal inflections were great. I just looked at him. I said, yep. You, were, greater. you and Obama went to the same school. <laughs> Clearly. I said, yep. <laughs> My vocal inflections were great enough for me to cash a $7,000 check that your university bought. 
And so anytime you want me to back, I will make sure I bring my vocal inflections with me. And I tap him on the back and I walk away. Not on the head. I, I thought about it, but his toupee would have fell off. <laughs> um, and so like, I, I always, I, I tell people, you know, like, no matter how good you are, you will be put into a situation where someone will remind you that they are intimidated by your presence because you don't look like them and you can do what they do better than them. Like there's no way someone that doesn't look like me should be the keynote speaker for this event. There's no way, right? There's no way you should be the director of, of a, a enrollment management. There's no way you should be working for the federal government. There's no way, right? Because they're thinking of people that look like them that haven't been able to get the opportunity you have. And I'm, I reminded, I'm reminded constantly, especially in my field of work, that you, you have to have a resume of 25 pages just to get a five-second conversation with some of these people. And half and to pay. Half to pay, right? And so, like, when you start to work for yourself or, like, when you become a contractor and you're negotiating contracts, I had someone tell me, uh, well, this was a last-minute change, so our budget isn't what it should be. I said, okay. So she said, is there any way that you can come down on the price? I said, yes, I can I can come down to zero. Oh, my God, you would do that? Yes, I can come down to zero. And I got off the phone, and I sent her a cancellation notice. Two days before the event. My face is on all the flyers. I had my assistant at the time. Ladies and gentlemen, our petty. Type up a press release. It's in the building. To explain to the local media that I would not be there because of, and I quoted first and last name. Oh, I can take it down to zero, absolutely. Because I found out who was supposed to be speaking for me, how much they were paying them. Oh, you messed up. And you want me to do it for what? No, thank you. 75% less. And then... I, I had out outlandish request. Okay, but I can do you one favor. So two days before the event, they had canceled. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. I felt achieved in that moment. I was like, oh, I, I feel. <laughs> you, you had control of your body. I did in that moment. I took that, that moment, moment away from you. In that moment. <laughs> That's my moment. In that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I was invited back the following year, my the number that they offered me was was greater than what I would have asked of them. I still said no. <laughs> I still I still said no because like no, we're not playing this game. We're not playing this game, and it, no, we going back and forth. No, you thought less of me at this point because you wanted to pay me less, and so continue to think less of me, and I'm gonna go ahead and get money elsewhere. Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm gonna take these events at surrounding universities, so you you can see my name, but you will never have the experience. And it happens often. And as a black man, it's exhausting. It's exhausting when you have to. You have to go into a meeting, and you sometimes have to prove you're worthy to sit at the damn table. And when you're looking around, like some of these individuals don't even deserve to pick up the crumb from this cracker that I'm eating that I brushed on the floor. The ability. To fail up belongs with the whites, <laughs> as, as my brother Jay, Jay, Dave Chappelle would say. 
or those that believe themselves to be white. Yes, those that believe to be part of the whites. Yeah, as Brother <laughs> Coach said. And so it's it's interesting um, that I, I, I like how he illustrated, you know, how he navigated through this terrain we call life. Um, and I I hope that his son took, it was a lot, it was a lot to take in from this book, but I hope his son was able to take in if not all of it, at least if he took in one fifth of it, he'd be all right. Or at least the royalties from the book. It was a new it was a New York Times bestseller, number one on the list. Oh absolutely. So so, so yeah, may he may he get may he get the get the uh the legacy of the of this letter, but also the legacy of that chick. Oh absolutely. I'm pretty sure he did. I'm pretty sure he did. Um closing things thoughts. Are- oh yeah go ahead. Well, just two things based off of um, you talking about those experiences. One of the things that I wrote down, so the great orator Trick Daddy has a song. <laughs> Trick Daddy Dallas, yes. <laughs> that T-double-D. Um, he has a song called Still a Nigga. And actually, as I was reading this, I had jotted that down because it made me think about that. It, it was just, you know, if you know the song, he basically just calls out these different scenarios. And it's just like, you're still a nigga. Like, it don't matter what it is, you still this at the end of the day. Um, one of the other things that I was thinking about as well, this book didn't necessarily talk about it, but when you talk about just from the title, Between the World and Me, being an African-American male specifically who has quote unquote, let's just say like made it. And when I'm saying made it, you know, you got college educated, but even if you're not college educated, you may be an entrepreneur, but you have made it to a a life that society doesn't think you deserve. So in a certain neighborhood, you, you're able to travel and do things that, you know, people like how you in the Maldives or you're in Martha's Vineyard, you know, it's like black people don't go there. Like, so sometimes I think being in that group of individuals, again, you know, whether um, it's your education that's got you to that great job or just your entrepreneurial spirit, you can still feel alone. One, because in your industry, you're too black. But then when you're around your people, you ain't black enough. So when we talk about between the world and me, if you flip this thing on the other side, you can legit be alone. And we talk about between the world and me, I am in this category of of folks where everybody is not there and I'm always in a state of by myself or just trying to like prove myself. I don't think it necessarily is solely a race thing, but it's it's a thing of identity type of um, not crisis, but folks around you are trying to figure out your identity, right? It's not just a thing of being black, everybody don't necessarily see you as black, right? Because white folks seeing you as black, but black people not seeing you as black. They probably seeing you as white. So again, I thought about that, again, between the world of me, of just being a sense of alone and by yourself. Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I, I really enjoyed the book thoroughly. I had read part of it. Um, maybe a couple of years ago, but I had to put it down 
with uh, you know a lot of the things I was going through in my life at the time, and really picking it back up. And uh, like you said, Ronald, get, especially getting the audible uh, version of it, and to hear his Baltimore tone, and to hear some of the stories that he told about his childhood coming up, and those stories are very similar to to my upbringing. You know, I don't start shit, but I have to be able to end it. And and to and to be in in this uh, kind of in these development stages of very very important years, you know, during your adolescence, during you know your teenage years, and to be able to uh, approach the world as an adult, but you're still a child. You don't have the you you're not equipped to deal with adult things. You know why why did that dude why did that light skinned guy with the bug eyes and the long face that he described in the book. Why did he feel the need to be packing at 14, 15? What's the, what was the symptom? And, and so, um, you know, it's powerful, man. You know, Tony Morrison, uh, Tony Morrison wrote on the front of the book, uh, this is a required reading. And I, and I definitely believe like, especially for all of our white listeners, I'm out there. If you are looking at various tools and resources to um, research further how you can become anti-racist, this book will this book will bring some empathy to your ass, <laughs> legitimately. Oh, this is my wrap up. What I I think you, you hit it spot on. Um, this is a required reading that's probably the best way to describe this book. It was written, like you said, in 2015, but everything he's saying, it's, it's almost like he wrote this yesterday. I think a mark of a good book is one that allows you to look at things in a different lens. And for me, this book made me recall scenarios in my childhood that I didn't necessarily, when I went through it, I didn't see it that way. And I'm like, dang, you're right. Like, it's this constant living in fear, or it's this constant. I don't own my body. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm loaning something that's not mine. I'm just, I'm here, but I don't actually own it. And I guess nobody has never said it that way. And again, it just made me look at stuff a lot different. And to your point, I think this is just a required reading that you just should read. Uh. One of the last things that he said in the book, I mean, I, I highlight a whole bunch of stuff, with, but he said, um, I am wounded. I am marked by old codes. You born, you born into something you ain't even know, like, <laughs> it don't matter what you do. You ain't gonna educate yourself out of it. You, it don't matter how much money you, it don't matter you become president of the US. <laughs> that part. That part. You can sit in the office of the most powerful position in the world compared to other nations. And they're going to want to see your birth certificate. And, and your you still going to be seen as a nigga. Yeah. Um, my final thoughts is, like you said, this is a book that needs to be read. And 
like this is my multiple time uh like you know this i've read this multiple times um what i will say is for those who aren't melanated that you so happen to read this book um i i need you to be able to read this without trying to weaponize his words and find something that nullifies or negates what he's saying is his experience because that happens often in a lot of the spaces that we're in i got pulled over by the cops and you know i'm explaining this and then you got you got someone that's oh it wasn't that bad well you know maybe you shouldn't have been driving that fast and it's like well, and so i want you to if you, if you are listening to our white listeners uh, i need you to be able to listen to the words that this individual is saying you're reading it. I need you to be able to read the words that the individual is saying and take it for what it's worth. You may not have had this shared experience, but that doesn't mean that this experience isn't real. Um, and so before we can even sit down at the table, you need to acknowledge that you and I weren't allowed to sit at the same table for quite some time. And there has been classical conditioning that has taken place for you to even question when you see me walking around the seats at the table. Um the world me is there's a dimension of things that exist that not everyone has experienced and no matter how many people write books no matter how many podcasts come out no matter how many times we have to protest no matter how many times we have to interrupt or cause a social disturbance that you see as an inconvenience you still will never know the magnitude of being black in America and as my man Hamid once said he was like I don't need you to try to understand it I just need you to accept it but I also need you to be able to recognize that um, there's nothing that you can do that will ever put you in my shoes and I think that's the difference between the world.